BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jaraska show as I speak. It's Friday, January 21st, 2022. Uh, it's been about a year since Joe Biden was sworn in. Good God. And here's the headlines uh, in the New York Times uh, on today's date. Biden toughens stance on Russia and Ukraine crisis. That's the front page headlines in the New York Times, ladies and gentlemen. I've not bumped into anybody in the city of Chicago who ever mentions the Ukraine crisis. I'm not sure if anybody in the city of Chicago even knows that, that there is a crisis in Ukraine. Anyway, to help us sort out all these, uh, these complicated stories, I'm just turning to our distinguished guests. I'm going to ask him to introduce himself, as he always does, every other week on this show. Take it away, distinguished guests. Well, thanks, Ben. Um, it's great to be back here. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, contributing writer at The Week, and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Um, and you will, I, I assure you, you'll find that in the nonfiction section, although I'm starting to think it belongs in the fiction section. So anyway, there it is. <laughs> it, the concept belongs in the fiction section because it would be like a, a bizarre novel. Democrats fighting like Republicans <laughs> be like one of those satirical novels, something that will never happen. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> the bane of our existence, Joe Manchin's speech in the filibuster being, by the way, I wasn't even going to discuss this. This is this, this is David Ferris and Ben Jarofsky 101. I was it's like he said something. <laughs> David, I wasn't even going to discuss Joe Man. I wasn't going to raise the subject. Yeah, I know. I just, uh, but that filibuster speech was like, it's so dumb. He's just, I so can't even dumb. get the words out. I mean, yeah. It's like, um, we used to have this old neighbor. Um, I won't get into too much detail to avoid identifying this person, but we always had this debate about whether she was stupid or malicious, you know? And um, that's the kind of the debate that I have about Joe Manchin. Like, is he, is he just bought and paid for, or is he both bought and paid for and dumb as a box of rocks? And I actually think it's both, you know, um, because he, he gave this whole filibuster speech about how the filibuster has always been part of the Senate. And it's like, no, I mean, 
For it to have always been part of the Senate, it would have to be in the Constitution. And it's not in the Constitution, and it wasn't in the Senate rules when the Senate was founded. Like, read one book, man, you know? Um, So it's just like they are committed to this thing that is so absurd, that is not used in any other democracy on earth. Like, if the filibuster was so great, why don't they use it in the states? You know, why don't state legislatures need a filibuster, you know? Um, it's just this one institution that needs this filibuster and it's because they don't want to do the things they say that they want to do because if they wanted to do them, they would do them, you know? So those are my, yeah, I, I, uh, actually, I, no, I actually do not believe intelligence plays any role in this whatsoever. Uh, I've been following Chicago politicians for 40 years. So I have a sense of how politicians behave. Uh, I haven't been following as closely national politicians, but they're basically cut from the same cloth. And that is uh, an elected official at a, a crucial moment in his or her career uh, will say absolutely anything to get out of a problem that they're in or to advance a particular cause that they want to advance, even if it contradicts what they said the day before. So I, I, intelligence, it's not like he flunked the test and and now, you know what I mean, didn't realize that the filibuster is not in the Constitution. It's just that it served his most immediate need which was to defend the filibuster by saying something about it, which is not true. Do you follow what I'm saying? And then it's left to people like you and me to analyze it. We're losing our minds analyzing it. I mean, if he told me the truth, right, which was like the filibuster was functionally developed to stop the progress of civil rights legislation, <laughs> that wouldn't sound as good. Yes. As this has always been part of the Senate, yes. right? So. Um, you know, as always, uh, it's, it's uh, Joe Manchin, the party of Joe Manchin. Remember we used to say about Joe Lieberman that uh, he was Joe Lieberman in parentheses, you know, D slash uh, Lieberman, right? <laughs> like he represents. Yes. Lieberman, right? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. he's like that. Kirsten Sinema is like that. Um, and these two knuckleheads, I mean, could ultimately be responsible for just an extraordinary amount of damage to our democracy. Um, and we've vented our frustration about them over and over on the show. And I don't know what else to say, except that they are as responsible as anyone else for the lack of success in Biden's first year. You know, well, uh, that leads to uh, the discussion of Biden's first year. So I'm going to put the Ukraine uh, and COVID in schools to the side. COVID in schools, again, was not something I thought I would be talking to David at all about, except he mentioned right before we went on air that his uh, his son's school closed because of a COVID outbreak. And I'm like, oh, I got to get your thoughts on this. Um, all right. One year in, you wrote, uh, uh, a column on this, uh, in the week. That's your, uh, weekly, um, column, uh, that you addressed one year in for Joe Biden. So why don't you, uh, take it away from, uh, top to bottom, your thoughts one year in on president Joe Biden. Sure. Um, you know, the, the best thing I could say about the first year of Joe Biden's administration is that he is still alive. Um, and, uh, beyond that, it's it's been just one kind of crushing disappointment after another um, since the since the that original COVID relief bill from March 2021. I think it was March 11th when they finally passed the thing, um, and that you know we got our $1,400 checks and um, we got the child tax credit. The people without children probably are not aware. I think that uh, the American government has been paying us like $300 a child <laughs> for the last 12 months, um, which has been great. And of course, it was allowed to expire on December 31st because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema wouldn't vote for it. Um, but uh, that's, you know, that's a whole other story for another day. So even some of the good stuff from the COVID relief bill is is either gone or it's been expended, right? Like it's, it's basically a done deal. Um, so I think that that bill helped keep us out of a 
a deeper economic crisis, um, and it did do some good for some people. But um, aside from that and, and the infrastructure bill, you know, roads and highways, I just don't think that that's what Democratic uh, foot soldiers came out to do, uh, you know, in, in 2020, was to get the highways repaved and, um, and invest in some trains, which is great, you know, <laughs> but like we, we had higher ambitions at a certain point, Ben. Um, and, uh, and I think that there have been two primary things that have tripped up the Biden administration. I mean, one, not really his fault. Um, and one, I think, really is his fault. Um, it is not necessarily Joe Biden's fault that, that Kirsten Sinema and, and Joe Manchin have single-handedly torpedoed his entire agenda. <laughs> he's met with them. He's cajoled them. He's gone out in public and yelled at them. Um, you know, and he, he, he can't strip them of their committee assignments and things like that. There's only so much that Joe Biden can do about the fact that, as we've talked about many times on the show, the Democrats don't have a working majority in the Senate. I mean, and that's the the way that we have to think about it. It's like there are 48 Democrats, um, there are 50 Republicans, and then there are these two people, and we never really know what they're going to do. Um, and that has meant no build back better. That has meant no paid family leave. That has meant um, no raise in the minimum, minimum wage. That has meant no real climate legislation. Um, sort of all of the big things that brought out Democratic activists and and, and maybe most importantly for the future of democracy no voting rights bill, um, no uh, no reinforcement of our democratic institutions, no pushback against um, Supreme Court gutting Roe v. Wade. Um, it's just the, the the democratic majority in Congress has just been completely impotent, you know, um, and, and, and incapable comprehensively of addressing our problems, of delivering on their promises, um, and and that is that is because of two single human beings in a country of 340 million people. And that's very disappointing. And I think maybe there's more that Biden could do about that. I think that he could be more aggressive with executive actions, even if they ultimately get overturned by the courts, he could at least try. But there is an element of this that is out of his hands, you know, um, and uh, and it's not it's not all Democrats. It's not Biden. It's these two people, you know, but that doesn't matter in terms of the outcome is the same. No matter whose fault it is, the outcome is the same. We look bad. We look weak. We look inept. Um you know, to Republicans, we look like a boxer who's like bleeding out of both of his eyes and is like hanging onto the ropes, you know, and they are ready to, you know, they are ready to finish us off. Um, the other thing that has really been bad for, for Biden have, has been the twists and turns in, in the pandemic. And um, again, it is not Joe Biden's fault that the virus mutated um, <laughs> twice in really destructive ways, right? Like it's not Biden's fault that there's a Delta and, a, and an Omicron variant. Um, but it is very much the fault of the federal government that we have been repeatedly unprepared for those for those twists and turns. You know, I think in, in retrospect, it was really unwise of Biden to like uh, declare independence from the virus on, on July 4th, when I think a lot of the epidemiologists were, were already warning about Delta, which was already out there. Um, and then it's been a series of, you know, I think deferring to these uh, to these bureaucratic actors who don't want to move fast enough because they, they want to cover their, their rear ends, you know? Um, and that's, it doesn't mean they're, they're venal or anything, but uh, they're not moving fast enough on certain things. They didn't move fast enough on boosters. Okay. And in July and August, we had very clear data coming out of Israel um, that the effectiveness of those first two vaccines wanes over time, especially for older people. Um, and the FDA and the CDC, they hemmed and they hawed. Um, they had these like acrimonious debates inside the agencies. And weeks and weeks passed 
before they finally authorized the boosters for like older people and then, you know, frontline workers, that kind of thing. And then finally, finally, finally in, uh, in October, they, they, um, they greenlit them for everyone, <clears throat> but they couldn't even get the Pfizer and Moderna boosters out at the same time. Right. <laughs> so there was this like weird period where it was like the Pfizer people had been boosted and the Moderna people were not, um, it was confusing. The messaging was confusing. They keep calling it a booster, which makes you think of childhood. Um, and you're like, well, I'm 50. You know, I'm not, I don't need a booster. I'm a grown ass man. Um, so it's, <laughs> uh, it's silly framing, you know. Um, and they were they were yeah. behind the ball on that. It was disappointing. Um, they uh, the FDA instructed Pfizer to go enroll more people in their children's trial, which is which has set the whole project of vaccinating children back several months. You know. Um, and if you, you go back and you read the debate that was taking place um, inside those agencies, and I think it was May and June, <clears throat> about how to proceed with the kids' trials, um, there were people there who were like, no, 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 we, you know, we don't have time on our side here, right? Like, we need to get the kids vaccinated before the school year starts. Um, and, and the FDA and the CDC just, like, did not see it that way. Um, and, of course, you, you know, it's really important to, to make sure that you're not you're not harming children with this vaccine because children are at much lower risk of serious uh, illness than, than anybody else in the population is. And so even, um, you know, even a one in a thousand adverse event is a catastrophe, right? If, if it's vaccines, but they have known for months and months and months that, that there is not a safety problem with the vaccines Like what they are, what they are dillying and dallying over. Uh, and I'm particularly exercised over this, of course, because I have a three-year-old, um, and I've been at home with him all week, which is, he's wonderful, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but trying to do, you know, having two grown adults trying to do their jobs with a toddler underfoot is not, is not a great situation. Um, and I think all of this could have been prevented had they addressed the need for kids' vaccines with the requisite speed and urgency. Um, and they also, I think, last thing about the pandemic um, is it's just incredible to me that, you know, they rolled out the, the government website um, to order your four tests per address. <laughs> Doesn't matter how many people are in your family, you get four tests. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, and people were like, wow, that's amazing. And, so, and I'm like, it is 2022, people. Like th this pandemic started two years ago. Okay. Functioning countries have had free rapid tests, uh, like the UK, free rapid tests delivered to everybody's house whenever they want them. Okay. Not for... Uh, every two years, not four <laughs> tests every two years, uh, as many rapid tests as you want and you need. Oh, um, and it would have yeah. been so, so much to drive down cases over the last few months. Um, you know, I'm not sure anything really could have stopped the Omicron wave in its tracks, but at the least we could have all made ourselves a little bit safer during this period. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and they also need, they need to, to revive Operation Warp Speed, the only good thing that Donald Trump ever did in his whole life. Um, to, to address these variants. I don't understand why they're not proceeding with an Omicron specific vaccine. I don't understand um, why they have, they invested $38 million in a, in a pan coronavirus vaccine. I, $38 million is a lot of money to me. Okay. But <laughs> when yeah. we're talking about the, the largesse of the federal government, it's nothing, you know, um, and a pan coronavirus vaccine is the vaccine that would, that would adjust, you know, it's good for all of the different variants that you could possibly imagine. And it would work on some other things like SARS, the original SARS and uh, MERS, which is a, uh, a really bad uh, uh, respiratory disease in, in the Middle East that thankfully is not <clears throat> uh, particularly transmissible from, from person to person. But if it was, it would end human civilization. Um, so <laughs> uh, they just, you know, they just seem to be two steps behind the pandemic um, at, at every turn since about June. 
um, when when we we kind of thought we had the thing beat. And ever since then, they just seem to have be they just seem to be kind of back on their feet. And it's not helpful when like mean girl Jen Psaki goes out there and is like, oh, what 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 should we do? Send a test to everybody's house? <laughs> what do you want? Puppies and kittens and rainbows? And it's like, uh, yeah, that is what we want, Jen. So um, anyway, the, the 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 extent to which things are not normal still for uh, for anybody with any common sense. I, I know that there are large swaths of the country <laughs> where where people are just going about their lives and they don't care that the hospitals are like. Um, you know Dante's Inferno. Uh, they're just there's like nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna keep them from the from the steakhouse. You know what I mean? But uh, for those of us who care about whether we get COVID, um, things still feel very abnormal in a lot of different ways when you step outside of your house. Um, the pharmacies are overwhelmed. There's we're still missing stuff at the grocery stores. And cars are ten thousand dollars more expensive than they were last year. A lot of things are more expensive. Groceries are more expensive. Um, it's hard to get a doctor's appointment. When you do get a doctor's appointment, the doctor looks like you know, if they've just finished the, the baton death march, you know, it's like they're all. And then there's all those like rolling, you know, there's school closures, there's daycare closures um, because people are either short staffed for, from COVID or there's a big outbreak there. Um, and so, you know, GDP is growing, right? And unemployment is low, but things don't feel good. Right? Um, people are not happy with the situation. The economy is working maybe for some people, but it's not working for a lot of other people. That's always been the case, of course, um, in the last 10 years. But um, that sense of ongoing abnormalcy and struggle and stress um, is really what's, I think, even more so than cinema and mansion, I think is what's driving discontent with the with the Biden administration. Because if there's one thing that we thought old man Joey Biden would deliver to us, <laughs> it's normalcy, you know. Um, and he may have delivered some 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 level of political normalcy, right? Like, He's not out there like feuding with sitcom characters and stuff on Twitter, but um, but the but the everyday lives of ordinary Americans always mattered more than whatever Trump was doing on Twitter. Like people mostly did not care about that, um, and uh, uh, and he hasn't been able to deliver that. And and again, it's not I, obviously it's not all his fault, right? Like this political scientists make fun of this thing called the Green Lantern theory of the presidency, which is like you know you get the president and he can just roll over all the different veto points in the American political system and and get whatever he wants done, done. And it's obviously not true. Um, and so there's only, you know, if you're, if you're really being rational about it, there's only so much of this you can blame on Joe, Joseph Robinette Biden himself. Um, love his middle name, by the way, it's incredible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Feel free to say it every time you say his name. <laughs> that's right. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my take on the first year. It's been very disappointing, obviously. Wow. That was a, that was a, incredible riff uh and uh that was Hendrick's like uh in its <laughs> brilliance i took notes on it and i have a couple points i want to make to you uh, in, uh, one is my favorite metaphor i use it all the time i've used it several times with you uh and um uh, so i want to point this out i the reality is uh that uh, mansion and cinema are only part of the obstacle uh, Biden faces. I think the greater obstacle of the Republican Party, and this is the metaphor I always use, uh, watching Joe Biden operate as president, you got to think of like a, a basketball player in a gym shooting jump shots. If he's just alone in a gym shooting jump shots, you, it's a remarkable how many of them go in. You put him in a court with the crowd cheering and booing, and more important, a defender in his face, it's a little harder to hit the jump shot. 
And the Republican Party is in the face of Joe Biden. And so part of the reason that Manchin, the main, the only reason that Manchin and Cinema have the importance that they do is that no Republican will break ranks on any significant issue. None. It's the most disciplined group of people I've ever seen. They've completely abandoned any notion of bipartisanship. You can't name one. I can't. Maybe that first uh, COVID bill, relief bill, was the one which we're in the middle of a crisis. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, guys. You don't get a, 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 a lollipop for that. Okay. No. So <laughs> he's dealing with that. And this is the question I have for you. I was watching Cory Booker give a speech the other day, and he had tremendous energy and antics. And and I was thinking, you know, what if somebody younger and more vigorous were in the White House and fighting back? And you just like you you you, you accept this notion, uh, David, that you're not going to get anything from the Republicans, so you just counterattack. Yeah, and like executive order after executive order, counterattack when you sign the order, bombard them with their counter rhetoric. Just point out this party, just what I said. They're, they'll never meet you any quarter way, halfway, a tenth of the way. And but Biden is, you know, the thing that so many Democratic voters went to him for because he, he he seems so harmless. That may actually a year in not look like such a good thing because every time he approaches the microphone, David, I'm like, uh-oh, is there somebody holding him up? You know, <laughs> so your thoughts on whether a more is there? Please don't fall backwards. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, I've never seen a less vigorous president, uh, less able to use the bully pulpit that has been given to him. And so you're right; they, his press secretary is so nasty all the time. It's just so she's kind of like the face of it. So your thoughts? I mean, are we, is Joe Biden in some ways really no fault of his own because he's pushing 80, his own worst enemy? You know, I, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I have wanted someone younger and more vigorous th throughout the entire process of the Democratic primary in 2019 and 2020. I thought it was important to have someone, you know, capable of uh, of, of meeting the urgency of the moment with the, with the requisite energy and, and creative thinking. And I, uh, going all the way back to, remember when Biden won all those states on Super Tuesday and he gave that speech? It was just as COVID was breaking on us. And he got up and he gave that speech. And I swear to God, I was sitting on my couch, like just gripping the side of the couch, like, please, God, don't let him say anything weird. You know what I mean? Like, please, God, <laughs> let him get through the speech and hustle him off the stage. You know, we're going to have a weekend at Bernie's presidency and that's going to be fine. Um, and uh, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, temperamentally, uh, I think he's unsuited for the moment. Um, and he always has been right? because this is not this is not an ordinary time. We have the covid crisis. We have the, the crisis of democracy um, and uh, and we have the climate crisis. We have three three crises, three major world historical crises uh, unfolding at the same time. Um, and you have a 79 year old man who is just like it seems eight steps behind um, the, the unfolding of events. And <clears throat> he wasted a lot of time. So did Obama. Right. But he wasted it. But he was Obama's vice president. So you, you would think that he would have learned from this. Uh, but he wasted a lot of time with the theory of bipartisanship. You know, um, he was elected with a promise to work for, with Republicans. We've been through this. You know, he brought Republicans to the DNC in the summer of 2020. Um, and really, I think genuinely believed in the power of Joe Biden 
to to bring some Republicans on board with him to get a few things done. Um, now, do I think that Joe Biden thought that he was going to get Republican votes for uh, you know lowering the Medicare age to fifty five? No, right? We don't think that. I don't think he thought that. But I think that he could work with them and ring out some some victories and satisfy Mansion and Cinema and get and get what they wanted to get done done. And that has not happened in, at all. And it is at the point where he, he, start, he needs to start using executive action. You know, um, take a take a page out of the Trump playbook and just bury them in in different policies. Like that's that's what Trump did. Uh, that was one of the secrets to their success. Is that every day there was something new to deal with coming out of that White House. Um, and the reality is, like the court systems generally move so slow um, that that by the time it was time to hold. Trump accountable for some of those things, he was gone. Um, and um, Biden could do a lot of aggressive things with, with executive action, not just student loan relief, but, but climate policy. And um, he could start delivering on some, some core Democratic priorities, right? It wouldn't be as good as legislation, but it would be better than nothing. Um, and if he was really, you know, a, a, a younger, more vigorous, more aggressive, more radical person, I don't know if this is Cory Booker in terms of radicalism, but like uh, like some combination of Booker and Elizabeth Warren and, and Sanders, uh, you've got the, you know, like combined procedural radicalism um, with, with an aggressive policy vision. Um, just start signing executive orders and just say that the, the, the they're unrevealable by the Supreme Court. You know, what are they going to do? Um, it is it is long past time to, to simply just destroy the Supreme Court as an institution in this country. Um, if, except for a short, like, 20-year period between the 50s and the 70s, it has always been a regressive institution um, that protects capital, that protects white supremacy. Um, that's uh, that's the role that the Supreme Court has generally played in our life. And it's and it's back to playing that role. It's been back to playing that role for a long time, but I, I feel like it should be obvious now that that's what it's doing. Um, a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court is going to cut Democrats off at the knees at every possible opportunity. It's what I've been warning about since 2018. Um, since 2016, really, it's, it's uh, since the since Merrick Garland's seat was stolen, it has been clear that the Supreme Court um, is the end game for the Republican Party. Um, and the when the when the court struck down the vaccine mandates for private employers last week, um, that's just a preview of what they want to do to the federal government. Like they have a theory um, that executive agencies cannot make policy changes without Congress, right? and that would just simply neuter them. Right. Like um, it would just completely change the landscape of the federal government and it would deprive incoming presidents of the ability to um, shift the agenda inside the federal government with executive actions. Um, and of course, whenever Republicans get back in office, they're going to switch it right back. You know, it's, a, it's a, again, the Supreme Court exists to protect Republican political power. So um, issue another executive order with another vaccine mandate and say it's not reviewable by the courts. And if the courts try to review it, say, I don't care. This is what we're doing. Um, it's what I've always wanted an Illinois governor to do <laughs> about the progressive tax system here. It's like, okay, I mean, I know what the Constitution says, but it's very stupid, and <laughs> and we're just not gonna, you know, we're just not gonna abide by it anymore because it doesn't it doesn't meet the needs of Illinois today. Um, so, but we just we don't have a president who's willing to do that. It's it's not just that he's not willing to be procedurally radical; he's just not even willing to to issue the executive actions in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think um, a younger, more creative person um, would would just be a better match for the moment. You know, um, it's just talking to me. Not, he was like, uh, no, I, 
I wasn't a particular endorsement of Cory Booker. I just want to make that clear. I just saw the energy that he brought to the the point that he was making. And I'm like, this has been absent from Joe Biden. And of course, he doesn't have it. And by the way, that riff on uh, Illinois governor eradicating with a, the s- signing of a piece of paper, the um, our uh, fixed tax rate uh, in Illinois, making it more progressive. Oh my, I could just hear I, the crescendo of opposition coming from the Chamber of Commerce and the business community. I just, I, wow. Okay. Um, wow. What you said, I just, I just wrote this down. This is, this is a very powerful quote. Uh, you were on a riff. I don't even know if you realized you were saying it while you said it, but the Supreme Court has always been a regressive institution that protects capitalism and white supremacy except for that 20-year period, roughly between the 50s and the 70s, the Warren era, et cetera, and so forth. You're absolutely freaking right. And I'm watching the Supreme Court. So please explain to me what dynamic is ultimately driving the Supreme Court uh, when it says, when it rules that Joe Biden's presidency does not have the, the authority uh, to mandate uh, f- f- uh, companies over a certain size uh, have a, a vaccinated workforce. I, I understand the argument they're raising about the role of Congress and the role of the executive branch. I understand all that. But putting aside the arguments they concoct to justify the ruling that they came up with, what are they really protecting there? Do you follow what I'm saying? So, like, if you order, if you, I understand, like, you rule that affirmative action is bad. Okay, you're protecting white supremacy. I get it. I, I understand what you're protecting. If what are they protecting in that instance where they rule, they throw out uh, a vaccine requirement, and then like within the next day, Starbucks of all institutions says, "Well, we're not gonna, we're not, we're gonna comply with the Supreme Court ruling and not force uh, employees to be vaccinated," which is such a bizarre position to take. Anyway, what? Are they upholding there ultimately with that decision? I mean, ultimately what they're upholding is is the right of Trump's like red meat base to not get vaccinated. <laughs> right? Like the the 30, you know, 25, 30% of the country that refuses to get vaccinated um, is overwhelmingly at this point, overwhelmingly comprised of Trump supporters. Um, and those people have to be their their delusions have to be fed. Um and there may be, I, I think there are some people who have like these principled, whatever, libertarian objections to to manda- mandatory vaccines. You know, I think it's silly because we we accept mandatory vaccines in all kinds of other contexts. And um, this crusade against mandatory COVID vaccines is, is undermining Republican willingness to take any vaccines, which is nuts. Um, so in the future, Ben, I don't want to be in a room with Republicans, honestly, because they probably haven't gotten the flu shot. Um, their kids didn't get the measles shot. Like they're going to be, they're going to be social and, and uh, they're going to be social pariahs if they go down this path, even more so than they already are, you know? So, um, so the Supreme court ruling is a, to protect those people from having to get vaccinated and B to protect the political position, um, of all of the, all the Republican governors and senators who have taken this position, which is pretty much the line, the official line of the Republican party, um, is that we are pro vaccine, but anti, anti mandate. You know, um, we believe in the vaccine. You know, they all got the vaccine, right? Because uh, they want to. They want to live. Um, but they're. Uh, but they have so many constituents who are hostile to the vaccine that this is the only line that they can walk. Right? Um, and that line is like, 
we would prefer that you get the vaccine, but we're not going to make you. Um, and that position is why we are still in a crisis. Um, the fact that there is a significant subset of the adult population of the country that just refuses to get vaccinated is why the hospitals, COVID wards are full of them, you know, and, um, and it, and it's why any kind of care is hard to get right now. It's why elective surgeries are being put off. It's why people are leaving the professions of nursing and, uh, and medicine in droves. And it's, uh, it's really, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's infuriating because, um, because the court, the presence of the court, that six to three majority on the court really closes off a lot of avenues that we might, might've used to bring this crisis to an end earlier. Um, and it means that like, essentially we're, we're just letting Omicron, the, the theory is that Omicron is going to end the pandemic. Um, and it will end the pandemic by finding everyone who is not vaccinated and giving them COVID. Um, and I don't have any sympathy in my heart for, for the unvaccinated adults at this point, but there are still millions of children who are unvaccinated who are going to get COVID um, because these people can't be bothered to do the right thing. So again, Republican political power is the, is the first um, and foremost mission of the six to three majority on the Supreme court. The vaccine mandate decision upholds that, that power um, by giving granting legitimacy to the, to the position of the official Republican party. If that's what this is about. If it was reversed, do you think they would have ruled uh, in the president's favor? In other words, if it was Donald Trump, uh, using his executive authority uh, to implement some order, and it was challenged, and it came before the Supremes. Do you think it would have been a six-to-three majority uh, enabling Trump to institute whatever mandate or requirement uh, he was seeking? It's a good question. I, I mean, I I would like to think the liberals would join the. <laughs> you know, the, the, the pro vaccine people there. And I, I think that's the sort of situation where it would probably be like seven to two, you know, and like, you know, Thomas and Alito or, or Thomas Alito and, and Barrett or something would still, would still say no to the mandates because maybe a couple of them are acting on, on some sort of twisted principles here. Um, but this, but I, I am convinced that this, that sort of swing block of Republican justices, um, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Roberts <clears throat> are acting, with one eye on Republican political power and one eye on, on the Supreme Court's legitimacy and the, the much bigger eye on, on Republican political power. Um, and so the, I think that those three would probably vote to uphold if this was Trump, you know. Um, but I could definitely see, I could definitely see Thomas and Alito just sort of grumpily being like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get off my lawn. Uh, one of the frustrating uh, aspects of this is to watch how Democrats uh, have as they usually do, move to the right. Uh, and uh, I forget which guest came on the show. I uh, was talking about the normalization of Trump on COVID. Uh, and I would like to give that person credit because it wasn't, I, I didn't say it was somebody uh, who else, another guest. It may have been you for all I know. I don't know. I, fed, I have so many conversations. Uh, but it was, I was like, wow, that's so true. And I'm, I watch this closely because I follow Chicago politics, as you know, very closely. And I watched a Mayor Lori Lightfoot and her health commissioner and in their fight with the teachers union, I, I can't, it, even now I can't really articulate it. It's so bizarre. They move right and become Trumpites uh, in order to win a fight 
just to win a fight, to win like a day's, a week's worth of headlines uh, in a fight with the teachers union. That's all. That's it. That's what the stake is. So you had the health commissioner saying, uh, David, that I don't that uh, Omicron is no worse than the flu. So come on back to school. This is the health commissioner of the city of Chicago. The hell? She's a doctor. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, why don't you just become Republicans? I mean, it's. And so. I'd love for you to address that issue where. It seems like Democrats don't have core beliefs either. It seems like Democrats, this is like, they fight among themselves so much and they adopt Trumpian lines to defend the positions they're having in their own little eternal fights, which undercuts the message, whatever message it is that they should be sending out, but they reserve the right to completely dilute that message at any given time if it meets their need at that very moment. It's a very frustrating party, uh, David, for, for to try to support. Yeah. So your thoughts on this, I'm like, you live in Chicago, you see what the mayor has been arguing. You, you have a kid who can't even go to school or to daycare right? Um, because of COVID. Yeah. And it's, you know, this is the way it goes when you, you know, when you have kids, it's like the first couple of years, you don't have any involvement with CPS at all, right? And then, as your as your children get closer and closer to school age, you start, you know, I start paying attention to the stuff. I started paying attention a little more closely to to some of these issues over the past year. Um, and I, I think that this all goes back to to the Virginia's governor race, uh, Ben, which is um, the the narrative that has taken hold is that the closure of schools in Virginia, which uh, which in some places in Virginia may have lasted a little bit longer than in others. Um, was was one of the big reasons that uh, Republican Glenn Youngkin was able to win um, because parents had, you know, parents were were done with virtual learning. They were frustrated. They weren't getting any support, all, you know, all of which is true, right? I mean, we have not really been supporting parents um, through these disruptions. And I, I, as a parent, I understand that frustration. Um, but I'm not sure that the place to direct that that anger is at, is at teachers' unions, right? Um and so what the conclusion that the Democrats drew from the Virginia's governor race was that they got to, you know, the schools have to stay open no matter the cost, right? Um, and in November, you know, that it was like that pivot lined up fairly well with reality, okay? Um, in other words, I think we were mostly able to keep schools open in the fall without too much trouble. Um, <clears throat> and then this thing, this Omicron thing comes out of nowhere, Um you can see the case curve coming 10 miles away, right? It's it's this incredible case growth and then an incredible collapse, you know? Um, and so CTU's position was like, can we have two weeks to, to, to let cases start to come down so that we can return more safely? Um, and of course, like that, that strikes horror in the, in the hearts of parents <laughs> who have just really been through the ringer over the past two years. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I, I have sympathy with, with, with everybody here, honestly, um, because some people just don't like, what are they going to do when the schools are closed and they're still expected to be at work? Um, and to me, that's the, the bigger problem here is that society is not cutting working parents any slack, right? That we've passed no policies. Um, we've passed no real leave policies since March, 2020 for people enduring school and daycare closures, um, and workplaces are not, most workplaces are not being very accommodating. 
um, when your school or daycare is closed, they, they won't let you take time off. And, and so when a school closes in this context, when you've already been through hell, <laughs> uh, like, you know, the first three months of the pandemic for me were like by far, by leaps and bounds, the worst three months of my life. Like it was horrible. Um, and so when my, when, you know, when the, when we had the outbreak, my son doesn't have COVID, but we had the outbreak and I was like, okay, we're without childcare for five to 10 days. Like I almost flung myself into the lake, you know, it, it's just like, I was like, I can't do this again. So I know where they're coming from. Right. Um, but, and, and the fact that school closures may not be super popular right now, is just not an excuse to force people into a situation that's not safe. You know, that this is a place where you have to stand on principle. Look, we're probably going to get our butts kicked anyway in November, you know? So like, um, and I, you know, you know better than me because you follow this and this is your, this is your beat, but it just seems like every mayor comes in here just loaded to bear on the union, you know, like just ready to go to war with them. Um, and um, I don't, I just, that's just such a puzzling dynamic to me because it just seems so politically destructive for the, for the mayors and it's not great for the schools. It's not great for the parents and it's not great for Chicago um, for, for this to be the dynamic between the, the union and the city. So anyway, those are my thoughts on that. Well, that <laughs> though, the, um, uh, if just, uh, just to, you know, just for a little uh, history uh, here, uh, it really, it's only f- from Rom. I mean, the dynamic of the mayor fighting the teachers' union is a Rom era thing, which Lori Lightfoot uh, saw fit to continue. Uh, and I think her political strategy is to have two fights going on, fierce fights, one with the Fraternal Order Police and the other with the Chicago Teachers Union so that she can position herself in the middle. She can look, I'm fighting those nuts on the right and I'm fighting those nuts on the left as though they're equivalent, which just think about that for a moment. The, last week, a couple of weeks ago, you were on a riff and you go, it, it, we're, in order for uh, to get, uh, Joe uh, Biden to get his legislation through, he's going to have to give everybody come together. The teachers unions are going to have to, and you included the teachers union in there. And when you said that, I didn't want to interrupt your riff, but I'm thinking in Chicago, the teachers unions are viewed as the enemy. The teachers union are positioned as the left wing equivalent of the fraternal order of police. Just pause to think about that for a moment. Politically, the Democratic Party is at war locally with it's like rank and file. And I'm at this stage, you'll never get a Lori Lightfoot to change. I think, you know, she and her strategists, I'm sure they have polling data that somehow or other validate this. And they're looking at short term. And like I said, in Chicago, everything is a fight for a headline of the day. So uh, parents are in the middle of this. So, yeah, you're absolutely correct. If the mayor of the city of Chicago said, you know what, guys, uh, Omicron is everywhere. We need to just close things up for a little while. Don't worry. It's only a temporary thing like they do in Evanston or they do in Hoffman Estates or wherever suburb. They have to temporarily close schools down because there's no no one to teach the schools. You know what I mean? <laughs> but no, uh-uh. we got to keep these schools open. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you're right. And it's all that. Yeah, it's crazy. All right. Uh, so here we are with uh, hardly any time left, and I'm going to drop this one on your lap. Ukraine. Uh, it was probably should be a topic for a whole show. And um, front page news in the New York Times as I began this segment uh, with uh, in a picture of Ukrainian uh, Marines jumping into a crosscut into the ice of a lake near the eastern front. 
uh, it's nowhere to be found in the pages of the local papers, the Tribune and the Sun-Times, which is just a uh, int- illustration of how insignificant foreign affairs are in the lives of most Americans in this country. And um, so your general thoughts on what Joe Biden is doing in, in regards to this issue, what he should be doing, in your opinion, uh, and America's reaction one way or the other to it. Sure. Um, I, you know, we, maybe we should do a whole episode about this next week or something and just and just drop it next weekend. But we can, um, you know, touch on it today. It is actually surprising to me that it's not a bigger story here because there's actually a fairly large Ukrainian-American community here in Chicago. Um, we have a whole village named after it, you know? <laughs> uh, so, I, yeah, I am a little bit surprised about the, the silence about it. But um, this is a really tough issue for, for Biden, I think. For, for a variety of reasons, right? Because he has um, he has inherited a, a bunch of unresolved problems vis-a-vis Russia and the and um, what we call the Russian near abroad or the Russian periphery. Um, so, like, let me just take a step back for one second and say that the Russian territorial dispute with Ukraine stems from things that happened uh, almost thirty years ago, um, and that is when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, the Russia itself was so weak um, that they essentially let 15 constituent republics of the Soviet Union just walk away as independent states <clears throat> with their with the borders from the Russian administrative state intact. You know what I mean? So, like the shape of Ukraine as it existed with the Soviet Union, like essentially overnight became an independent state. Um, and in Ukraine in particular was thorny because when the Soviet Union fell apart, <clears throat> Ukraine uh, overnight became the world's third largest nuclear power <laughs> because they had a bunch of they had a bunch of nukes stashed in, in Ukraine, um, and the Ukrainian government wanted to keep them. Right? <laughs> it's like because why not? Um, and so they had to make a deal with Russia. Um, and the deal was this, it was codified in something called the Budapest Memor- Memorandum. And the deal was that Ukraine would give up its like leftover Soviet nukes um, in exchange for Russia recognizing the existing borders of Ukraine um, as the permanent borders of the Ukrainian sex- successor state to the, to the Soviet Union. Does that make sense? So they gave up the nukes and Russia said, okay, we won't, you know, we won't hurt you. And <laughs> um, in the, in the, in the, and it's sort of similar stories, not not involving nuclear weapons, but sort of Russia sort of acquiescing to these new states coming into being all around it um, was the, the story of the of the early to mid '90s when Russia was at its at its weakest, I think, in in a hundred years. And when when Putin came into power and, and Russia started to recover its footing around 2000, he he is very much wrapped up in this nationalist grievance narrative. Um, that the West imposed the terms of its surrender, essentially. Um, and I think most gallingly for Putin is that those borders left millions of, of ethnic Russians and Russian speakers on the wrong side of the Russian frontier. And so it, at its heart, the Ukraine, the Ukraine crisis is a crisis of the country is half, you know, it's really half Russian, half Ukraine, and half Ukrainian, and then the eastern half of the country is dominated by Russian speakers who, um, I think for the, you know, push come to shove, they'd rather be part of Russia than Ukraine. 
Um, and so Russia, for the past 15 years or so, has been reasserting its primacy in these areas and um, picking off little pieces of the territory in places like Georgia. And, um, you know, they went in and annexed the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine in 2014. And there's been a low-level conflict in several provinces in, in eastern Ukraine ever since then. Um, and it's it's about the post-Cold War settlement. It's also about NATO expansion into Eastern Europe. And so the current crisis is partially about those, those ethnic Russians in Eastern Ukraine um, that Russia sees itself as the protector of and, and would like to, I think, annex more of Ukraine. I don't think that Putin intends to, to go march to Kiev and, and take the whole country um, because the, he's going to find a lot more resistance <laughs> in the Western half of the country to his advances. Um, but I think he'd be perfectly happy to annex a third of the country. Um, and his the negotiating that's taking place with the Biden administration right now is um, Putin is issuing these pretty absurd demands. Okay, he's saying um, he wants an ironclad guarantee that that NATO expansion is over, right? So that we will not expand into Ukraine or Georgia. Or, I mean, I think those are really the only plausible candidates right now. But um, but we won't do that. And he wants us to take. Um, NATO military forces out of any former Soviet Republic. So that means he's asking for us to evacuate NATO from the Baltic states, you know, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And, and these two demands are just non-starters. And so it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not actually, I, I don't think we ever should have done some of this stuff in the first place. Okay. But it's done. Right. And the Baltic states are in NATO and we, we can't, we simply cannot walk away from them. Um, and so the thorny issue here is like Ukraine is not in NATO, but we do consider Ukraine to be an ally, um, a kind of a struggling democracy. And without NATO's help, Russia can do what you know more or less whatever it wants to Ukraine. And you know we can reinforce them all they want, but they're you know it's like a tenth the size of Russia. I mean, ultimately it's just a numbers game. Um, and so Biden is in. I think he's really in a pickle here. Um, you get too aggressive, then you risk nuclear war. You know, I mean, we all still got our nukes pointed at each other, right? <laughs> like, it's it's not something we think about anymore. But if NATO and, and Russia got into a hot war in Ukraine, um, anything could happen, you know. And so he desperately wants to avoid that. I think he desperately wants to avoid further cannibalization of Ukraine because of the precedent that it would set in other, especially in other territories along the Russian frontier, like in Central Asia. Um, and, uh, and Putin is not, is not, negotiating seemingly in good faith right now. So is there a solution out there that's short of war? I don't know. Um, it seems sometimes like Putin has already made the decision that he wants to invade Ukraine. Sort of like, you know what this period reminds me of um, is in the run-up to the Iraq war when Bush was like, oh, okay, uh, you can send the stupid inspectors in, but I don't really care what they find. We're going to do this anyway. <laughs> right? So the, the, the negotiations right now feel very perfunctory. Um, and like that they are, it just feels like Putin doesn't want them to succeed because ultimately I actually think that he just wants to annex these pieces of Ukraine. And then, the, and then the ball is going to be in, in our court, you know, is, will the Ukrainian government say like, okay, we can accept being a smaller country and sort of, uh, offloading this problem, right? Like presumably once the Russian speaking areas of Ukraine are in Russia's hands, a deal could be had. Okay. Um, but obviously that has broader implications for other countries, for the international system. Um, you know, it's, it's, we've, we've been kind of sitting back with this Russian aggression for some time and, and not really doing much of anything about it. Um, 
and I, I happen to think it's possible that there isn't anything that we can do about it short of, of a major war. And uh, I don't think people want a major war over Ukraine for better, you know, for better or for worse. I, I don't think that what's what, what the American people want. And so Biden is, is walking this very fine line between uh, trying to stand up for the sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine, um, dealing with voter opposition to getting heavily involved in this conflict, um, the potential volatility, the p- potential danger, the small risk of nuclear war. Um, all of these things are, are, I think, weighing on his mind. And uh, I, I would be lying to you, honestly, if I said I knew what to do about this, <laughs> because um, I, I think it's a, I think it's one of these problems that defies easy answers. Right? It's not a partisan issue. Um, it, it's not an American institutional issue. It's, it's really, it's brinksmanship. And I, I'm not inside those rooms, and so I don't really know what's being said. Um, and it, it's hard for me to say one way or the other. Uh, you know, in an ideal world, we would cut some kind of a deal with them, um, where we give them a little bit of what they want and. What, what really needs to happen is this crisis needs to come to an end. Right? It's been eight years almost since the Crimea crisis, since Crimea was annexed. So this has been going on for a long time. It's not good for anyone. Um, but uh, but again, I'm, I'm not sure that Putin is always open to reason. And I, I think that he knows ultimately that that the U.S. might not be willing to fight for some for the for the integrity of some of these countries. So that's where. Oh, yeah, I could guarantee you that. It, our country can't get together on a vaccine, okay? We, I mean, we are so split right now. Is just to know, Joe Biden. If Joe Biden were to give a speech to the American people about how important this is and how critical this is, and I'm getting the army ready to go, no, I mean, half the country would be immediately against him. And I'd probably be in the half against him. I'm not saying uh, I would have different motivation than, let's say, uh, uh, a MAGA person, but, uh, David, listen, the reality is, and that was a great, uh, a little uh, recitation that you gave, but the reality is, is that it seems like Putin is in his own way, slowly trying to stitch back together the USSR only to have it, uh, a non-communist kind of weird fascist, crypto fascist, capitalistic state, uh, which fits in well with, uh, MAGA. So, you know, like, I think a good chunk of the country is rooting for Putin. You know what I mean? Uh, yes. Yeah. Trump made Putin is popular. Like pro-Putin now. Um, and it's a gangster capitalism is what Trump is. So they're like birds of a feather. Gangster you know? capitalism. Yes. So, um, yeah, no, I, uh, if, if, uh, if you think Biden's acting out of a place of weakness when it comes to uh, employer mandates, on vaccines, stuff that would like literally protect Americans. Um, yeah, there's wow. The, I mean, it, and, and so I think it's telling. I think most of the country just doesn't want to pay attention. Uh, so we just force fed this little lesson down their throats. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think this, you're going to learn about Ukraine. There's one, I think there's Go one ahead. more thing going on here, which is, uh, in terms of, uh, terms of the public, which is some sort of compassion fatigue. Um, and it, which is, I can speak to, I mean, I know so many people in crisis right now, <laughs> just like mental health crises related to the pandemic and just awful things happening to people. You, you get, to, I, you do get to be a little bit numb. Um, and I think that that sense of numbness on, on the part of the whole population is extending to foreign affairs right now. Um, where I think things that so some people would normally get fairly agitated about, like what's happening to the Muslim population of China and things like this uh it just even if it's just the human rights activist community um 
it, you just don't, it's just not breaking through the public consciousness right now because everyone's like so weary and grumpy and <laughs> has just so had it with everything um, that it's, it's not an ideal time to be a Ukrainian who needs America's help, you know? And uh, I, I agree with you in general. I, I think that when push comes to shove, I don't think that we can really go to war over Ukraine. Um, there are, there are certainly s- steps short of war that, that could be done sale of weapons and stuff but you, you know you, you can't just like park an f-35 in kiev tomorrow and and expect it to be um used correctly <laughs> some of this stuff requires training and you know what i mean so it's a tough situation it's there's really no easy answers here so we're, we're just gonna have to keep an eye on it all right very good that's as good as place as ever to uh put a halt to our conversation for today david thank you very much uh i know you're dealing with your own issues in your home and I'm gonna let you get back to them. So appreciate it very much for taking time to talk to us. Well, it's great to be here again, Ben. And uh, I look forward to next time. Hopefully, we will not be talking about a Russian invasion of Ukraine on the next show. We'll see. It may have happened by then. Yeah, we'll see. Definitely. All right, uh, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Bye.